Welcome to the 11th episode of National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute's podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems, and cyber weapons. My name is Amim Lutfi, and I will be the co-host for the series along with my colleague, Alessandro Arduino. We're glad to have with us today, Ms. Neva Yao, who is a researcher at the OSCE Academy in Bishkek. Ms. Yao is an expert on China's Western peripheral diplomacy, including Central Asia and Afghanistan. Recently, one of her papers uh, won the Washington Post prestigious award for the best paper in political economy. Uh, but today we're going to talk to her about another research project of hers that she did with Dirk van der Klee on the role of Chinese private security companies in Central Asia. Thank you very much for being with us, Neva, today. And uh, congratulations again for your paper to you and, and to Dirk. Uh, to start off, uh, uh, I would love if you can give to our listener a quick overview of Chinese private security firm in Central Asia. What country do they have an established presence, for example, and since when they have been there? I do recall it's not a recent thing. Uh, what kind of different service do they provide compared to other private security firms, both local or international? Thank you. Thank you, Alex, and uh, thank you to the National University of Singapore and your podcast for having me uh, here today. So in our research, we found six Chinese private security companies with evidence of operations in Central Asia, only uh, in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. The level of presence is different in each of the three countries because of legal local constrict, uh, rest restrictions. The first Chinese PSC that went into Central Asia was the Xinjiang Xiamo uh, Deiwei. They provided uh, bodyguards for the Chinese engineers that are working in Kazakhstan from 2013, quite a uh, basic service. In Kyrgyzstan, we have a more sophisticated Chinese uh, private security company, a company named uh, Zhongjun Junghong. Uh, they have about 20 Chinese clients, uh, different uh, Chinese uh, companies, and they offer uh, even political risk assessments. Um, and this company have a local weapon license granted by the Kyrgyz government as well. The local private security sector uh, is actually quite large in both uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan for different reasons. For Kazakhstan, because it's a lot of oil money, for Kyrgyzstan, it's because there's a weak state here and a lot of political instability. Uh, Chinese uh, PSCs here, they set up joint ventures with uh, Kyrgyz local private security, where in Kazakhstan, the local uh, uh, Kazakh uh, private security companies there, they have a, they have a large uh, like a labor union group and they lobby in the Kazakh uh, parliament to actually resist Chinese entry into the Kazakh market because they, they already have really good relationships with the Russian uh, uh, private security companies actually. So in Kyrgyzstan, uh, Chinese clients, also they hire local private security companies because they have uh, insights and sometimes uh, connections with local criminal groups. Uh, this is something that the Chinese uh, PSCs have to rely 
the local partners on. And uh, at the moment, there are no uh, Western uh, PSCs in Central Asia, to my knowledge. Uh, of course, I assume here we're talking about Central Asia excluding uh, Afghanistan. Uh, thank you for, for giving us that overview. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, this is, I'm talking about the paper that you co-wrote. One of the arguments that you make that, that the spread of Chinese private security companies is happening hand in hand with Chinese commercial expansion through the BRI. Now, a few months back, we had uh, on our podcast, a representative from HXZA, which I mean, I'm sure you know. And one of the questions that we asked him is, was about um, this popular perception that uh, Chinese uh, PSCs are basically a front for the PLA. And as a response, I mean, he was, he refuted that, that claim. And he says, anyone in the industry would know that, you know, that's just not true. Uh, and, he, and one of the arguments that he made, which was interesting, was that that a lot of the security contracts that the BRI projects are awarding are actually not to Chinese companies themselves, and they're being awarded through open market. And if a Chinese company ends Chinese PSC ends up getting the contract, it's only purely because it, it sort of you know it, it, it's won it on the basis of the services it offers. Um, would you say that's true? Even in Central Asia, are Chinese private security companies gaining these BRI contracts simply because they offer better services or a better price point? Um, in Central Asia, is is this is a very uh, a, a difficult uh, kind of uh, environment because you know uh, uh, winning these contracts or having an open tender would mean that there is uh, competition, right? But here, there's simply no. Uh, competition. I mean, each uh, kind of uh, Chinese uh, PSC, each of the Chinese PSC here kind of dominate one country. And and, and so in, in Kyrgyzstan, for example, uh, there's only one really active uh, Chinese PSC, uh, Zhengjunjun uh, Hong, and they are getting absolutely all the contracts from all of the Chinese companies here, even for Huawei's uh, office in the capital and as well as the Chinese embassy. Uh, here in Bishkek. So for, for years now, uh, Chinese companies here only work with local private security companies or the local police, uh, but it's not working because they are quite corrupt and very unreliable. So in a sense, the Chinese PSC, you know, they are providing better service, but it's mostly because it's Chinese owned. Um, so in this sense, uh, uh, the, the company is getting contract because it is a Chinese PSC and they have very close relationships with the Chinese embassy and they signed uh, security arrangements to even protect projects that are still at the negotiation uh, uh, stage. So uh, on a related note, as you just mentioned, this uh, relationship uh, between Chinese PSC and embassy. Uh, in your paper and your article, you mentioned that the Chinese government uh, has taken several important steps in, uh, let's say, do a kind of coordination between the various stakeholders abroad, such as creating coordination group in embassy, establishing security management guidelines, and so on. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on this and especially focusing on the various efforts, uh, giving us an idea if at the end of the day, uh, this uh, kind of coordination has been a success or not? Mm. So this is the uh, this is from an official Chinese document published in 2018 called the Security Management Guideline for Overseas Chinese Funded Companies, Institutions, and Personnel. So this is a 170-page precise measures of what Chinese companies abroad should do to be safe. 
and this is published by uh, I think the the the, the Ministry of Commerce uh, in in kind of collaboration with uh, with other Chinese uh, ministries. So it says uh, in this document that Chinese PSCs, amongst other Chinese agencies, are part of this newly established. Uh, 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 mechanism called the Belt and Road National Security Intelligence System. And this is the first time that this mechanism was actually mentioned in a Chinese uh, document disclosed to the public. And, and, and it says there that this mechanism aims to make intelligence gathering more transparent across different ministries concerning foreign affairs and Chinese PSCs are expected to join Chinese embassies in reporting and engaging intelligence gathering under the system. Are they uh, successful? Well, in this region, there's already uh, a lot of joint intelligence gathering effort to fight terrorism under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So the point of having uh, Chinese PSCs to engage in, in intelligence gathering and connected to embassy, uh, to me, it seems like it's about gathering local intelligence. Is not about uh, a collaborative kind of uh, uh, work with the Kazakh and the Uzbek. It's more about uh, what China wants to know. So that's about uh, local criminal groups, uh, political risk in this country, and so on. And and China, of course, has shown itself very knowledgeable about this region and 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 these countries here. It's extremely clear. I'll I'll give you um, a recent a recent example. So. Uh, in, in Kyrgyzstan at the moment, we're undergoing a, a, a political transition since October. Uh, we have a new leader, uh, uh, his name is uh, Sadir uh, Jabhav, and in November, his supporters were pressuring him to manage uh, debt issues with, with, with China. I mean, Kyrgyzstan is the most indebted countries to, to China in the world. And Jabhav, this new leader, he proposed to give uh, this uh, mine, uh, this mine called uh, Zetimdu, uh, is an iron ore mining site. Uh, to the Chinese, but uh, in order to pay the debt. But China didn't accept this because this site is actually very, uh, it's a very sensitive site. Yes, it's, it's the world's uh, second largest iron ore deposit. It would be very profitable, um, but it's situated between the two river mouths in Kyrgyzstan uh, on the top of the mountains. And this water, if they are contaminated, it will kill the entire agricultural sector, not only in Kyrgyzstan, but also in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, because the water flows from here uh, to, to, to the entire region. And this is why even the Russians didn't dare to touch it during the Soviet Union. And so Japarov's deal was a trap deal and China, you know, very, you know, immediately avoided it. And it, 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 it came out to, to say that we will not take this deal. We will not take this mine. And, you know, if you want debt extension, we will offer you uh, 35 million for a four year uh, uh, period of extension. So uh, it was very clear that Beijing had uh, access to information about uh, uh, this mine and about, you know, these, these plans. That's, I mean, that, you know, there's this insight that you give. I mean, what was um, very refreshing about your paper as well, that beyond this uh, official story of how this collaboration has happened, it gave us a feel of some of the informal practices and work around that the PSC companies are developing to overcome, you know, like uh, legal restrictions such as a Chinese citizen's, you know, ban on using arm abroad or Kazakhstan restriction on the presence of foreign PSCs. I'm wondering if you could also give us, give our listeners some, you know, insights, some examples or some something that you experienced about some of these informal workarounds, these laws. 
Yeah, so yes, there are local legal restrictions that regulate the activities of foreign PSCs in Central Asia. In Kazakhstan, they outright do not allow operations of foreign PSCs. So the Chinese PSCs there, they call it logistics services, um, escort logistics, transport, security, whatever you call it. Um, and the bodyguards employed by uh, Chinese engineers, like I said, uh, are personal bodyguards and they came together uh, with the engineers uh, from China. Uh, so the contracts was not technically uh, in Kazakhstan. So there's a way around it. Uh, uh, but of course, uh, there is no way around uh, having your compound guarded by Chinese PSC security guards. So uh, this doesn't happen in, in Kazakhstan. Uh, in uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, on, on the other hand, the Chinese PSC, Zhongjun Junhong, uh, work as a joint venture with a local private security company who's uh, led by a former police chief. Uh, so to get around the Chinese bar on uh, Chinese citizens using arm um, abroad, this company here, they insist that only the local staff uh, carry guns. Yes, this issue of gun uh, is not only related to Chinese in Central Asia, but uh, is all along the high complex environment uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative. But please, Niva, allow me to push a little bit further the envelope uh, on hiring locals. Your article hints uh, at the role and the fact that their role is not limited to carry arms, uh, but instead always involve uh, more high level and complex roles, such as, uh, as we mentioned before, intelligence gathering, liaison with local government official, and so on. So, uh, in your opinion, uh, what are some of the main countries in the region in which we are seeing uh, this local Chinese partnership? Uh, if you can give us uh, some example of what they look on the ground, and especially on another note, considering that uh, the main medium of communication in Central Asia is Russian language, do you see any role played by a Russian private security firm in the region or any future role? Thank you. Yes, uh, Russian uh, PSCs are in fact uh, present in Kazakhstan, but they work together also with the Kazakh uh, uh, private security companies um, and the Kazakhs are okay with it because the uh, they're okay with working with the Russians in Kazakhstan because the Russians actually also let the Kazakh uh, private security companies work in Russia so there's a a, a good you know collaboration there but there is uh, this is not the same for China we don't see Kazakh PSCs in China for example this would be you know uh, quite unthink of so the the higher level and more complex roles are, are seen in Kyrgyzstan the most because criminal groups here put a lot of Chinese companies at risk, uh, mining companies and the assets and, and, and so on, because there's high political instability and little protection. Uh, whereas, you know, elsewhere in Central Asia, you know, the regimes are quite uh, authoritarian and stable. So in Kyrgyzstan is the, is the country where uh, Chinese companies are, are most at risk. Um, intelligence gathering and uh, uh, liaison with uh, local government is just uh, pre pre preventative measures. Uh, revolutions erupt in Kyrgyzstan very quickly. In, in like in last year in October, no one expected it to become you know another mini revolution. No one expected you know to have an early presidential election and have another new uh, president so soon. Um, on the ground, uh, especially Chinese mining companies, they hire Chinese PSCs and local PSCs at the same time, because the local uh, private security companies here have knowledge into uh, criminal groups and sometimes even business relations uh, with these criminal groups, so they can pay and make it all 
uh, go away. And it's the same logic when it comes to working with local government officials uh, to have someone on your side who's gaining uh, powerful positions and friends with the right people to make sure your assets um, are safe. And this is the mainly the interest of why Chinese companies hire PSCs because there's a demand for intelligence gathering, so the Chinese PSCs have to meet them. On a related note, um, I'm wondering if there are, uh, you know, examples also of Chinese companies partnering with uh, foreign private security companies. I mean, one of the examples that you mentioned of Frontier Services Group, um, led by Mr. Eric Prince. Um, but are there other examples too and, uh, of, of Chinese and Western partnerships? Or is there something different about Frontier Service Group? And if it is different, if Frontier Service Group is operating differently, um, how do they do it? How do they hire people? How do they operate? How do they get contracts? What sets them apart? Hmm. Uh, Frontier um, Service Group, of course, is the one type of this China Chinese Western partnership, but really is a is a standalone case. Uh, in my research, I found thirty two Chinese uh, private security companies that work abroad, and uh, a few of them do hire Western security personnel as consultant. Uh, sometimes, uh, I think I saw uh, either it was uh, Qatar or uh, in, in the Gulf region, uh, the local uh, 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 oil experts were actually hired uh, uh, as consultants. So it varies in uh, countries. Uh, in Central Asia, uh, no locals are hired as uh, uh, consultants because already uh, Chinese private security companies here work with um, uh, local uh, private security companies who already have this uh, uh, knowledge. So when it comes to Chinese uh, private security companies hiring uh, Westerners or locals is, is to fill a gap uh, of knowledge that uh, uh, they don't have. Yeah, since we already discussing uh, Mr. Prince uh, and uh, it's uh, for several months that we are trying to have him in this podcast, uh, so we'll have the chance to ask him this kind of question directly. But uh, looking about uh, FSG recent activities uh, is that they are no longer limited to the security industry itself. Instead of just gaining subcontracts for logistic or Gandhi mining site, uh, FSG and Eric Prince uh, by himself uh, is not trying to bid directly on the mine. So we do see uh, similar cases. Did you experience this uh, for, for example, Chinese private security firm expanding in other line of businesses in Central Asia, especially the mining sector, as you mentioned before? And uh, I, I recollect that in Central Asia, especially gold mines are quite attractive to Chinese investors. Yes, uh, uh, not particularly in mining, but Zhongjun Junhong, the Chinese uh, PSC working uh, uh, in Kyrgyzstan, have shares in a Chinese-owned cement factory here. So they also at the same time protect this project as well. So I definitely see the interest of uh, Chinese PSCs wanting to expand into other uh, sphere of, of work. Yeah, to uh, maybe, I mean, extend this discussion of comparison between Chinese private security companies and the Western ones. Um, one of the trends that we're seeing with some of the Western companies that they're moving away from this idea of private security being sort of an instrument of blunt force 
or being you know an actual physical force to now they're focusing more on on developing technological edges um so uh, you know like developing specific niche niches in in either drone use in cybersecurity and so on and surveillance um would you see do you see a similar trend with chinese private security companies as well with now developing very high tech arms and developing a niche in that sector as well so I have to first uh, again mention that uh, uh, because uh, Central Asia is a region of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and uh, high-tech security measures uh, uh, using drones and military exercises, uh, cybersecurity, uh, sharing of information, all of these things are already, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that is going on within the SCO and China have access to these things. So uh, um, it's not really the role for Chinese PSC uh, uh, to do that. And uh, uh, apart from that, uh, there are also actor, other actors in this region, other, other Chinese actors in this region. For example, uh, Chinese software engineers, uh, they are already working as consultants in this region uh, uh, in, in the very sensitive networks for the uh, surveillance traffic camera system. They are mainly Huawei's deal with the local governments. So there is very little the Chinese PSCs can do more. Uh, actually, I see more Chinese PSCs trying to change the mindset of the Chinese companies here. Uh, for example, Chinese mining companies here are used to collect, uh, used to allocating a cost uh, for security to to pay to local criminal groups or officials uh, for protection but but now the chinese psc is actually suggesting to stop this practice uh, and, and actually work towards strengthening rule of law in this country for the long-term uh, safety is quite interesting uh, i don't see uh, chinese psc's here as high tech at all but this is mainly also because central asia is still uh, extremely uh, backward uh, rural areas are, uh, are mostly where these uh, mining companies are located, uh, but internet there is very slow and, and very expensive. No, that's quite interesting what you just mentioned, and especially if we look at the development of the so-called digital Silk Road. Because, for example, in the part of the world that we are sitting right now, that is Singapore, and Singapore is undiscussed global leader in technological innovation, uh, you will see on paper that there is a lot that a country like Singapore can provide, uh, not only in cybersecurity, but in this technology cooperation in Central Asia and also with China. But then this is on the paper. If we look at reality, then we can see that there are a lot of limitations. And one of these limitations, for example, is the fact that uh, foreign entity cannot own uh, Chinese private security that operate overseas or even cannot have a share into them. Uh, and do you foresee any change in the future in uh, in more open uh, market for uh, not co collaboration only, but ownership or partial ownership? And uh, more broadly, do you see any space for Singaporean company on the BRI project in Central Asia? Um, I I don't know if Singaporeans would find it appealing. Is a lot of work uh, uh, in these countries, and it makes very little money. Um, I would say, you know, thinking from the perspective of uh, profits, uh, it makes the most sense uh, for Singapore to work uh, in Kazakhstan. Uh, but I actually also doubt that the Kazakhs will be willing to open up to Singapore as well in the realm of, you know, private security or anything related to um, uh, security. 
but uh, you know, but with that said, the Kazakhs are very keen on having their own uh, technology they can monitor. So maybe this is something that uh, Singapore can can target in terms of uh, technology uh, transfer. Uh, for example, in Kazakhstan, the surveillance camera system, yes, they use uh, Chinese hardware, but they also insisted to use Kazakh uh, software engineers to build a Kazakh software, and they did that, and they monitored their own uh, system. So I think uh, Singapore uh, should target working with the Kazakhs uh, directly, and, and you know, perhaps the chances will be, will be higher. The limitation on um, overseas Chinese ownership of uh, PSC is mainly because Chinese PSCs uh, domestic or working abroad are regulated by Chinese law. And this means that uh, at least 51% has to be state-owned. So this uh, squeeze out uh, any foreigner's stake in the Chinese company uh, abroad. For example, in uh, here in Kyrgyzstan, uh, Chinese PSCs uh, set up a joint venture with local PSCs where the Chinese uh, act as uh, bringing clients and the local side act as uh, offering service. So for example, you know, to work with uh, Chinese PSCs abroad, I think it would make sense only in the country with a lot of Singaporean uh, investments. So there is an incentive to bring in a Singaporean uh, a PSC to attract Singaporean clients. Maybe, you know, I thought maybe in Myanmar, this could be uh, possible. Um, to change the, the, the topic a little bit away from this technology and, you know, conversation about high tech, um, I want to ask about like what are what is the nature of opposition that some of the Chinese projects face in Central Asia? What are the main security threats? Is it just disgruntled workers and displaced natives um, who are opposing uh, these these foreign investments and and developmental projects? And if so, are there any attempts or sort of any conversation going on? about even expanding the idea of what security means to include uh, something like social welfare services, right? So, I mean, you talked about how sometimes they pay off local gangs and local criminal groups, uh, but other, other option is also like investing in development. You build schools, you build hospitals and so on to take away some of those causes of, of grievances. Are those some of the conversations going on as well? Um, so the opposition of you know against China in this region is uh, is a lot more complex. It dates back to uh, Soviet uh, teaching. Um, so last year there was a Chinese logistics hub project uh, a proposal in in south of Kyrgyzstan that was cancelled because of uh, a lot of local opposition. Um, my my partner, in fact, was there uh, very recently, and he spoke to one of the protest uh, leaders. And uh, the protest leader said that he's against the project because he's himself anti-China. He was uh, reciting a Soviet poem from 600 years ago about how bad uh, the Chinese is, you know, culturally, and how the Chinese is is said to swallow the entire, you know, Soviet Union step by step, and and this is what we are dealing with, and 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 this is, you know, the 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 older generation who were educated by Soviet Union. Well, there's also another factor. Locals here are, are generally uh, anti-foreigner. Many foreign businesses like Turkish uh, factories or Kazakh mining companies here, they are also frequently attacked by locals. 
the main problem for foreign companies uh, in this region is because foreign companies pay tax to the government in the capital. And because of corruption across this region, this money never channeled back to the local communities. So the locals that live around these foreign companies and projects, they never see benefits. And this is very common. But then uh, uh, last year, I found out, uh, I got in touch with, uh, with a Chinese uh, mining company here who actually every year they allocate a portion of their profit uh, 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 to this uh, local village development fund uh, to build roads, to build schools. And, and even then, sometimes they still get into disagreements with the villages and that went violent you know, quite quickly. So there's definitely a strong will uh, for Chinese companies to expand uh, social welfare services, you know, building long-term uh, soft power. But this uh, takes time. The older generation has a very strong Soviet thinking. The younger generation are beginning to see benefits to work with China and they're quite, uh, you know, pro-China, you know, especially during uh, COVID-19. Uh, there was one uh, public opinion poll survey done in Kyrgyzstan by uh, a company, uh, Central Asia uh, Barometer. They, the statistics show that uh, young people actually find China as the best country in fighting COVID-19 and also the best country in helping Kyrgyzstan with uh, COVID-related uh, uh, aid. So in terms of uh, soft power uh, in the future, this uh, uh, will, will, will definitely change and the situation of kind of uh, uh, anti-China uh, sentiment will, uh, will not be as uh, severe. Uh, before thanking you for joining us today, please allow me to ask you the last question that is the one that we ask to all our guests here. Is that uh, what in your opinion would be the future of security management in a complex environment, how it will look like in the coming 30 years from the perspective of Chinese private security company in Central Asia? Mm -hmm. So the Belt and Road Initiative is not uh, dying, uh, it's written into the constitution. So uh, Central Asia as a very strategic uh, a region for uh, China's kind of, you know, Western, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote expansion. Uh, there, there will be more and more Chinese investments in uh, Central Asia in the coming 30 years more Chinese PSC presence will definitely follow as well. Globally, there is a gap of regulating private security companies. And I think this will change, especially in Central Asia. Uh, the, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe is a comprehensive international security organization that also cover Central Asia. It is within the scope of the OSCE to support local governments to strengthen private security regulation and code of conduct. And this is an area that some colleagues of mine in Vienna have been interested to do more. With the support of OSCE and also other international organizations, a stronger rule of law concerning foreign PSCs in Central Asia is going to offer more preventative security measures, reducing points of conflict that are posed by foreign PSCs. So the way I see it, the work of foreign private security abroad will be more regulated in the coming uh, 30 years. And with this, I would like to thank you again for having joining us today. And please also allow me to thank uh, the Middle East Institute without whom this podcast will never have been possible. Namely, our event and communication teams, Middle East uh, Institute Associate Director, Carl Skadian, and also a special thanks to all our listeners. Please follow us on the various social media platforms and send us your comment and feedback. 
our next podcast will look at a niche but very specialized market, special insurance in complex environment. We will have London-based experts explaining their point of view on a wide range of special insurances, from kidnapping from ransom to piracy and cybersecurity. Thank you again.